everyone, you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that treats the works of King like the rich pieces of literature they are. So welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen, as I'm thrilled to have you with me today as we discuss another Stephen King novel that is most definitely in my top five. If you've been keeping score thus far, you have at least three out of the five. One is the masterpiece 1986 novel, It. The other is Joyland. I know, a little bit of a controversial pick, perhaps, among King enthusiasts. But if you haven't listened to my episode on Joyland, please do, and you can see why I'm a fangirl. And Revival, my friends, today's novel is right there alongside those two. So, you guys, okay, so (laughs) this book gives me pep in my step. This book gets me talking fast. I truly love this book. And louder for the people in the back, I love this book. I love it. It's so extraordinary. It's complex. It's absolutely wonderful and we've got wild experiments, religion, drug addiction, rock music, and almost every Stephen King fan out there who I've read, watched, listened to, or talked to in person who has read it says it's awesome, the ending is just wowzers, and how incredibly, in all caps, underrated this novel is. This one is such an underrated work, guys, and it's such a powerful book. This story super duper cuts to the bone, my friends. And to the delight of horror fans, it's also pretty scary, especially in the final third of the novel. I uh, was was not ready for... Um, it was my second reading, and I still uh, was thoroughly creeped out. But in Revival... The horror and brutality is pretty rough and pretty real. Subjects, themes, very deep, very unapologetic and unforgiving. So if you're in need, if you find yourself in the mood for a king ending with a bit of hope, do not head this way, folks. Do not turn back now. This road ahead be bumpy. But if you are still along for the ride, I can't reiterate how underrated Revival is, friends. This is a 2014 release. It's a little over 400 pages, and despite its really good reviews, this is one where the ending polarized a lot of readers. I think we got a little bit of that under the dome effect where the ending went down in such a bonkers way, as well as a very bleak road that when the reader is finished with the novel, they may not have looked on the entire journey so favorably. So that's my hypothesis as to why this one has potentially remained in the shadows a little bit since its publication, but that won't be the case most likely as Mr. Mike Flanagan, director and writer and Stephen King adapter extraordinaire, as of this year, 
says he plans to bring it to the silver screen, of which I am thrilled because this book needs more eyes on it, guys. It needs to be explored more, and Mr. Flanagan has proven his worth amongst King fans with not only his stellar series on Netflix, The Haunting of Hill House, if you haven't seen it, watch it right now, right now. But he did a most excellent job with Dr. Sleep, which I think I'm going to talk about this year because it's it's such a winner. And uh, although I haven't watched or read this novel myself yet, I've heard really good things about the Gerald's Game adaptation on Netflix that he did. So I've heard that that was really well done and it's really a seemingly impossible story to adapt, but many were quite pleased with what he did. So that's like three for three right there. And I'm thrilled that Mr. Flanagan has chosen Revival as the next endeavor. So he was recently on a lovely Stephen King podcast um, called King Cast, uh, where he was quoted on the project saying, it is relentlessly dark and cynical and I'm enjoying the hell out of that. This is just bleak and mean and I like it for that. This one was a really fun piece of material for me because I get to be like, oh, you want a dark ending? Okay, cool, get ready. So I love that quote and he totally gets it because that's exactly what this book delivers. Uh, he is absolutely right and I'm so so thrilled he decided to take on this giant bull of a novel and I have a wonderful feeling it's going to be amazing. And I'm looking forward to just a few things, some of the top two. Number one, I can't wait to see who they cast for the role of Charles Jacobs, our fifth business. He's our villain, our anti-hero, an incredibly rich, complex character. I think King did a wonderful job with this villain. I'm thrilled to see who they're going to pick and how they're going to age him. I'm also probably equally 50-50 mega excited for our other star protagonist, Jamie Morton. They're both incredible together and I have, I can't really think of anybody, any celebrity in mind, but I'm dying to know who's going to embody these amazing characters because, my guys, these two characters are incredible, so good, and we're going to nerd out to them a little bit more in our character section of the episode. But my number two uh, sort of hope slash question is, are they going to go full horror? So the scares in this book, are real and frequent and but the themes are so heavy so we've got you know the addiction and the the religion lots of death so I'm really wondering how dark he's gonna go um, the book is pretty intense while still bringing a lot of sadness to the reader it does maintain a lot of heart and tenderness especially in the early chapters so I'm wondering if he's gonna kill the heart completely and just create a terror fest or I'm curious as to if he's gonna bring some balance and we might have those moments of light and brevity, potentially a tiny breadcrumb of hope and maybe he'll head more of the suspense route rather than full horror. So those are my curiosities for Mr. Flanagan. 
So having just finished read uh, reading If It Bleeds, which was the brand new novella collection of this year, if you have read the novel and haven't listened to my two parts covering the four stories in that collection, please jump back and do so if you wish. But if you have listened already, I mentioned how my favorite story in the collection is the first one, Mr. Harrigan's Phone, which features a nice old benefactor and the friendship he maintains with a young boy named Craig. So that take that story takes place in the small town of Harlow, Maine, and I was correct that it's the same town that Revival takes place in. And I knew it rang a bell, and so granted King position stories in similar towns all the time, but I always feel there's connections when he does that. So so in it was my second reading of the novel this past week, and I couldn't help but connect Revival back to Mr. Harrigan's phone and see the paralleled relationship between Charles Jacobs and Jamie Morton, who are our main characters in Revival, and Mr. Harrigan and young Craig. It's the same sort of vibe. It's the same sort of interaction, although with Mr. Harrigan and Craig, it's definitely more positive, uh, but still, I think they do balance out where they kind of mirror each other. Um, so we're actually going to go more in depth on this a little bit later when we discuss characters, but I found it really cool that there's a connection to the story I absolutely gravitated to more um, than the others in the collection. So I was really excited to see that same kind of character connection in the same city unfolding. So more on that here in a little bit, because whereas Mr. Harrigan's phone was like an echo of the gothic masterpiece Frankenstein, Revival, guys, is the loudspeaker of Frankenstein, and it's so good. My inner gothic novel nerd is in full form with this story. So Revival was a 2014 publication. It is Mr. King's 63rd novel. This was post-Doctor Sleep, I believe, and post-Joyland. And with this novel, I have vivid memories receiving my hardcover copy as a Christmas present the year it was published. Books are always great on Christmas, but a new Stephen King on Christmas is, it just hits a little harder, and I think the fans out there understand. It's super magical, and this one, um, at least my version, the 2014 American hardcover, has this awesome iridescent cover and a super dramatic lightning bolt, and the letters are just big and bold, and it's actually become one of my favorite covers in recent years. It's a super fave, and this second read just really shot it to the top, but um, I read it shortly into the new year of 2015, I believe so, for the first time, and I felt the exact same as I did this week when I was reading it again, which was, oh, this book completely carries you away. Um, Within 10 pages, guys, I swear, you're on board with this book. I was instantly hooked, instantly scooped off my feet, and this is one of those narratives where King lines up the intrigue and hits you with the likable characters and interest in those likable characters almost instantly, and you're just on board in such a short amount of time. 
The first 10 pages of this book are just genius and brilliant and completely effortless in how they're put together, but they make such an impact. And the entire book is like that, guys. It's just such rich, beautiful storytelling. So if you need a bit more than 10 pages, I would say the first three chapters, which equates about the first 100 pages or so is jam-packed with such strong storytelling and character development that if you're not completely latched on by then, I you're missing out, friends. Most stuff. But if you would call yourself a regular digester of King's work and you haven't read this one yet, if I were to put it succinctly to a King fan, this one feels like a good meal. This novel, at least for me, within the first few pages, feels like you're going to sit down to a really good meal. So hopefully you're hungry because Papa King really feeds the reader with ultra rich, really decadent, layered storytelling. And it's just a masterful positioning of pieces in this one. And then also, it, it I think resonates very deeply because we have a large passing of time. So we really age with these characters, which brings the power of time into the equation as well. But overall, guys, I'm so in love with this novel and the journey of this book is a grand one. So five years ago, when I read it for the first time, I believe I actually watched this interview live on TV when it happened because 2013 was the year Steve King and I fell in love. So my radar was this masterful storyteller at that point. Um, I was just on board and so I was uh, fangirling and trying to get my hands on everything he had done. So in 2015, he was his gracious and charming self with Matt Lauer on the Today Show promoting the book, and Matt talks about one of the most powerful scenes early in the novel concerning Reverend Charles Jacobs and when he publicly renounces his faith. And King gives this great quote in regards to his own personal connection to faith, which is that he was raised in the Methodist denomination of Christianity as a young man, which is the exact same denomination explored in this story, of course. But I love what King says to Lauer when he asks if King really enjoyed giving religion a kick in the teeth in this book. And King says, I think people with a lot of faith have a lot further to fall. And I love that. And that just puts it plain and simple and very accurate concerning those in this novel. It's very correct. So Lauer also goes for the throat more, which I think we as readers were glad for, but he says, do you believe in God? Or he asks rather, do you believe in God? And I think it's pretty genuine, but Steve says, and I quote, I do. I made a decision to believe in God because it's better to believe than not to believe. I came to that conclusion when I realized I had addiction problems that were bigger than I could solve myself. And so it was easy to say, well, if I've got a power greater than myself, okay, that's fine. I can use that to make life livable and good." End quote. So Matt keeps the train rolling in the interview and asks about, well, what about the afterlife? And King says, 
there's no downside in believing there's a heaven or an Elysian fields, is there, right? It's a win-win, and if there isn't, we aren't going to know. So Matt Lauer ends with asking if he's afraid of death, and King says he isn't afraid of death, but more of the Alzheimer's or advanced physical problems. But I like that King gets the final chess piece and brings lightness to the interview by ending with, I'm curious. He says that it's the experience all humans go through. Death is very much like that phrase, like death and taxes, but some people don't pay their taxes. And he concludes by telling Matt this book has a scary wind-up. So that gives me some ideas when I hear that when it comes to discussing the ending with you all. Gives me some, uh, some ideas about maybe why he took it the directions he did, but I really love that interview, guys, and I think it sheds a lot of light on this fantastic book because the themes are so heavy and the human exploration of the soul and the darkness within the soul are on full display and the big question of what's after this is in... Um, full swing and it's I think with these big big questions it gets us really close to the man typing at the keyboard uh, granted perhaps King is fooling us and his answer is a bit of a false carrot to satisfy the hard question nature of a morning show interview and maybe he's pulling a fast one but I'm not sure I I believe his answer I do I think it could be genuine and uh, in the short story collection I covered a couple weeks ago, just after sunset, I think it, that one was the one, we did have a lot of reflection on the afterlife and sort of these stories that seem to create a hypothesis to what King believes might be out there when we die and what happens with the sort of ghostly remainders of us. And I remember in one of the author notes when he talks about it, he says he's a softy and quote, does believe we go on. So for me, I think that King believes that there is more, which is which is good, and I think it's uh, helpful to have that in mind when we talk about this novel, guys, because deep waters, guys, we're, we're headed into deep waters. So because the ending is like Under the Dome and a topic of controversy and highly discussed among those who have read it, in this episode we will be discussing the ending of this novel in our third section entitled What's Working and What's Not. So if you're a first-time listener to the show, the way I organize is firstly introducing the book, which is where we are now, <laughs> says, which is, you know, Her Royal Highness, Queen of the Obvious. But next, I'm going to take a look at what's unique about the novel, cool things I noticed, connections I made, ideas I'd like to propose to all of you and who are new and old King readers, and maybe there was something you missed or an idea that works if you've recently completed this story. And then after that, we're going to jump and investigate our second section, or pardon me, that's our third section. I'm all out of sync here. <laughs> so we've got the introduction. Our first section is going to be what's unique. Our uh, third should be heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. And then lastly, what's working, what's not. But um, 
in our third section, we will discuss those in the story who made an impact or stood out as a strong symbol or a catalyst. And then the final section, of course, is what's working, what's not. Based on the phrase of one of my favorite grad school professors who always said this when we were workshopping stories, and we will talk about some questions I had in regards to the novel or areas I felt could have been executed better or explored to a greater degree. And sometimes, every so often, I'll have a section within a section I call wishing well, where I suggest what could have happened that have made that could have made the story stronger or provided a more satisfying narrative impact or character arc. So we may have a little bit of wishing well concerning this novel and its polarizing ending. So if you haven't read Revival yet and you're not wanting any spoilers, definitely keep this episode in your queue for a little bit, or you can definitely listen to the first 45 minutes of the show, because um, I'll only cover the ending in the last 25-ish minutes. Um, so we are going to have some spoilers on the ending, particularly toward the end of our exploration. We're also going to talk about characters quite a bit, and with that, there's going to be a few plot outcome reveals that allow these characters to branch out a little bit. So a fair warning to those of you treading into the storm with me. So before we head into our next section, I have a little summary I wrote to kind of uh, get us ready. And my summary of Revival is that Jamie Morton is six years old when he meets the young Reverend Jacobs. And by nine years old, Jamie and Mr. Jacobs are close friends, neighbors, and are soon forced to say goodbye when immense tragedy demolishes the life of the Reverend and leaves young Jamie with big questions about loss and God and where hope goes when the ground is pulled out from under you. Jamie finds girls, rock and roll, and heroin and runs into the former Reverend over the next few decades where his friend has taken on awe-inspiring and a terrifying talent where the power of electricity brings both blessings and curses to those who are still willing to place their faith in a higher power. So I was as vague as I could make it, even though I want to tell you all the things because I'm super excited. But let us now uh, head into the gathering clouds. I think I hear distant thunder. So please join me in our next section of what's unique about the novel Revival. listeners, thank you for heading into the gathering storm with me. Uh, this section is going to explore what I find most unique, most enjoyable, most interesting about what's going on in the novel Revival. So I've got three little areas I'd like to share with you and the first one is mostly stemming from one of the strongest themes we have in the novel which is religion. So I have mentioned in other episodes how I got my mind 
minor in religious studies, so this is definitely a nerd card going to come out a little bit, but I promise I won't stray too far off the path. And then I'm going to show you um, two examples from the text that kind of highlight where I see this um, religious shifting going on. But my first topic is called exchanging deities. So as I mentioned, I think religion is one of the strongest, if not the strongest thing we have in this novel. Um, the topic concerning faith and the human spirit and where people put their faith and in who. Um, but both of our main characters, Reverend Charles Jacobs and Jamie Morton, lose their faith in traditional Christianity early in the book. But what's interesting is how quickly after they let go of their belief in a supernatural god, they replace it with a physical one. So for Reverend Jacobs, it's electricity or the raw, sort of dangerous, beautiful, powerful lightning. When he wasn't a practicing minister, all of his time and attention and fascination went into gadgets that harnessed the power of electricity. And when he decides that worshiping an invisible god brought nothing but broken hope and sadness, he replaces the invisible for the visible for the predictable in terms of a physical entity that could potentially be understood, perhaps contained, controlled, manipulated, um, somewhat reasoned with, yet still inspiring and uh, just totally consuming. So many who abandon traditional Western religions or uh, Eastern religions at that often replace that desire to worship something or be connected to something with nature. Nature becomes the deity they serve because uh, it's, it's there, it's changing, it's powerful, it's uncontrollable, it makes us feel incredibly small. Um, and so what I remember from my courses in religious studies during undergrad is concerning the notion of worship. So without going too much off the trail, all humans worship whether we realize it or not. And I know worship is one of those weird words. It's very reverential and it's one we usually hear uh, associated in a religious context only, but worship is anything that gets your time, your money, your focus, and your presence. Worship is what we give all of ourselves to. And for a lot of human beings, that's the internet or an app or games or music or a particular hobby or a particular person, which is risky. <laughs> and it's where they feel they must pour all of themselves into. Um, all areas of themselves go toward this place, this thing. That's what worship is. That's worship. So with Charles Jacobs, he trades one god for another. He trades the holy of holies, the the great invisible unknown for the awesome power of nature and science so he can devote his life to studying it, controlling it, manipulating it, and attempting to control the uncontrollable. 
And we see this exact same thing with Jamie, I think. With Jamie, he exchanges his god for guitar, for so he exchanges um, traditional Christian beliefs for rock music. He gives up a god who brought suffering and loss to his life and exchanges it for something that brings him confidence and obsession and it opens up his life to an underworld that makes him feel really alive. Um, after Jamie lets go, he gets girls and weed and cigarettes and cars and life and he's just living life so fully. Life is all around him. And what's cool about both of these shifts in the story is how at the end of chapter three, Charles Jacobs He's saying goodbye to nine-year-old Jamie and telling him about the lightning pole at Sky Top, which is a cliff face outside of town that gets a lot of lightning activity. It's also a very pivotal spot for lots of stuff in, that takes place in the novel. And the reverence and awe and love he has in this monologue with Jamie, I'm actually going to read a portion of it. It's very much in that moment, like a... I just like snap my fingers. It's that moment where his grief-stricken heart sort of fully pledges itself to another god. Very much like a rebound relationship. You're when your heart's broken or you get broken up with, oftentimes you want to refine you want to find relief somewhere else real quick. And you want to find someone else who makes you feel different, someone who makes you feel better, and perhaps someone to make jealous. Um, so in this case, the something that makes uh, Jacobs feel better is, the, is, na is nature, is um, the lightning. And then Jamie has that same moment as Charles Jacobs at 14 when he borrows his brother Khan's guitar and teaches himself to play songs on it. And the passion and obsessive desire to play and learn and be with the guitar, we see each of these men, um, we just watch their hearts replace where faith was um, with these alternatives they chose. Or perhaps you can argue these alternatives chose them, I don't know, but we see those moments of letting go. And I really like looking at the theme of faith um, of each of the men in this story and when they kind of exchange it for something else. So I'm actually going to read a snippet of those here in just a few minutes. But the side note I have um, connected to exchanging deities, this is again just like a little nerdy tangent, but um, pagan gods question mark. So specifically concerning Jacob's enlightening, um, in the Greek pantheon we have Zeus, which is king of the gods. He is a yielder of lightning. Um, forged by the god Hephaestus, and he controls sort of the universe with this lightning power. In the Norse pantheon, there is Thor, the son of Odin, the Allfather, uh, also god of thunder. Both are incredibly strong, powerful figures. Both are also very alpha male sort of figures who are able to specifically manipulate thunder and lightning. But I feel like there could be a little bit of symbolism um, with these pagan yielders of lightning and thunder. Um, I might be really stretching there. But all stories have deep roots in myth, and so when I look at Charles Jacobs, I can't help but think of these pagan gods and look at their sort of characters and uh, 
look at the desire for power and control um, that Charles Jacobs has and so I don't know what do you guys think I'm just sort of thinking about I'm, I'm throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks in terms of potential connections to pagan roots just a side note. So my second topic I want to talk about with you guys is the nature of grief metamorphosis. So as I mentioned earlier, the themes of faith, life, and death are so strong in this book, but one of the largest ones I observed is the notion of suffering and tragedy and where the human soul goes when it strikes. And for me, I think King gives us various examples of the paths taken by individuals who look back in anger because their grief has just consumed them to a point where they're altered forever. Um, Jacobs, in particular, rather than maybe attempt to heal with the passing of time and move on and perhaps open his heart to marry another and have more children and have more life, he really shuns all that and chooses a life of revenge in a way. I think his pain is such a deep cut. He feels perhaps betrayed by God um, that he is swearing to a life of vengeance, I think. And we'll explore that more when we look at the character of Jacobs, but he's fascinated by the God of nature, this power um, that's raw and wild, and it's a force that consumes him and he surrenders everything to it. And I think really loses his life in the process in terms of emotional healing and maybe rebirth. And uh, for Jacobs, it's just scar tissue and that somewhat callous nature toward humans and faith. And yet, um, there's that strange sort of dynamic. Jacobs is such a subtle villain for me um, to where he, he gets me questioning if he genuinely cares about those he's healing in quotes or if it's all just sort of a scientific um, uh, hash marks going on there. Um, so the grief metamorphosis that he undergoes I also think is connected to my little side note here, which is the loss of the feminine. Um, as a part of grief metamorphosis, what we also have heavily present in this novel is the loss of light feminine figures. So in other episodes, I think specifically Duma Key, I mention light feminine versus dark feminine as symbols of energy they bring to the text and kind of what they represent. And in Revival, what I noticed is all of the women mentioned are real breaths of fresh air. They're such loving light bearers and carriers of good. Almost every single female, I think if not every single female in this novel is a benevolent presence. So for example, um, Jamie's mom, who's pretty instrumental in the first half of the novel, passes away at 51. Jamie's eldest sister, Claire, who everyone loved, was this really gentle, beautiful soul, and she was murdered by an abusive husband before the age of 30. And then Charles Jacobs' own wife, Patsy, who everyone had a crush on, and she was just this delightful piano player, such a supportive person and loving mother. 
she and her son are killed in a tragic accident and the female body count in this book guys especially in the second half is so so high and i think this is worth mentioning because the great absence of these lovely women seem to not only callous Charles Jacobs from Finding Love Again, but Jamie also doesn't commit to any one woman or marry or mention anyone very special in his life. And it's almost as if the pain of losing these women in their lives broke them inside for all time. And so I'm going to talk more about the bachelor nature of the men in this novel as we head into the character section, but overall we have this transformation of through grief in this story. With Jamie it seems a bit more subtle, but with Jacobs it's very much a descent into human darkness disguised by the facade of scientific advancement. But what I'm noticing is like the loss of the feminine in this novel really alters these men forever and they never give their heart away again. And it's it's really quite fascinating as to maybe what King might be saying of how special the role of women are and can be, especially in terms of lovers and sisters and mothers and how when they leave there's just nothing but carnage and rubble left and you can't go back, you just they're irreplaceable and that's really heartbreaking when you think about it and it's very deep and and very sad so i really kind of enjoyed seeing how these guys transform into something somewhat sinister and sad forever um, because of grief and i think king especially with the character of jacobs really shows us what grief can do if maybe left unchecked or how the human heart can scar over pretty quickly um, without sort of given new hope. So more on that in a little bit, but I did want to read you some of my favorite scenes um, in the text where I feel both Charles and Jamie choose their new gods. So let's see, this first one is on... So I'm going to read Jamie's first, which is on page 97 in the American hardcover. I grabbed an issue of Sing Out at random and looked for a blues, any blues. I found one called Turn Your Money Green, saw how to make an E, all this shit starts with E, Hector the Barber had told Con and Ronnie, and played it on the guitar. The sound was muffled, but true. The Gibson was a fine instrument that had stayed in tune even though it had been neglected. I pushed down harder with the first three fingers of my left hand. It hurt, but I didn't care, because E was right. E was divine. It matched the sound in my head perfectly. It took Khan six months to learn the House of the Rising Sun, and he was never able to go from the D to the F without a hesitation as he arranged his fingers. I learned the three-chord cherry-cherry riff E to A to D and back to A in ten minutes, then realized I could use the same three chords to play Gloria by Shadows of Night and Louie Louie by The Kingsman. I played until my fingertips were howling with pain and I could hardly unbend my left hand. When I finally stopped, it wasn't because I wanted to, but because I had to. I couldn't wait to start again. I didn't care about the new Christy Minstrels or Ian and Sylvia or any of those folk singing assholes, but I could have played Cherry Cherry all day. It had the way to move me. 
If I could learn to play well enough, I thought, Astrid Soderbergh might look at me as something other than just a homework source. Yet even that was a secondary consideration, because playing filled that hole in me. It was its own thing, an emotional truth. Playing made me feel like a real person again. So I super duper love, love that. And then let's see, this next one is on page 86, and this is where I feel we really see Charles Jacobs choose his new god. At the Skytop Summit, there's an iron pole 20 feet high. It's driven deep into the rock. I have no idea who put it there or why, but it's been there a long, long time. It should be rusty, but it's not. Do you know why it's not? I shook my head. Because it's been struck by lightning so many times. Skytop's a special place. It draws the lightning, and that iron rod is its focal point. He was looking dreamily off toward Goat Mountain. It was certainly not big compared to the Rockies or even the White Mountains of New Hampshire, but it dominated the rolling hills of western Maine. The thunder is louder there, Jamie, and the clouds are closer. The sight of those storm clouds rolling in makes a person feel very small, and when a person is beset by worries or doubts, feeling small is not such a bad thing. You know when the lightning's going to come because there's a breathless feeling in the air, a feeling of, I don't know, an unburned burning. Your hair stands on end and your chest gets heavy. You can feel your skin trembling. You wait, and when the thunder comes, it doesn't boom cracks, like when a branch loaded with ice finally gives way, only a hundred times louder. There's silence, and then a click in the air, sort of like the sound of an old-fashioned light switch makes. The thunder rolls, and the lightning comes. You have to squint, or the stroke will blind you, and you won't see that iron pole go from black to purple-white and then to red, like a horseshoe in the forge. Wow, I said. He blinked and came back. He kicked the tire of his new old car. Sorry, kiddo. Sometimes I get carried away. Super love that. And I really enjoy those moments where we kind of uh, see that surrendering to something new and more tangible. So that's about what I have for what I found most interesting. We're going to talk about many, many more things in the upcoming sections. But for now, the thunder is getting closer and the lightning is closer in the distance as well. So let's go deeper into the storm with character analysis. Folks, welcome to our character analysis section, and I think we have a really nice cast in Revival, um, especially split between the 14 chapters. All in all, we probably have a dozen or so more characters, um, including the Morton family, uh, Charles and Patsy and Maury, his family, as well as in the second half of the novel, 
when Jamie Morton is working at Wolfjaw Records with Hugh Yates um, and a couple other people that he meets along the way. So a nice cast. I think it's digestible rather than uh, some of the larger ensemble cast. So this one I feel has just uh, the right amount of people to keep track of and really we get some great character development in this novel, guys. I'm going to kick it off with um, my two favorites, guys. So I feel that Charles Jacobs and Jamie Morton are so awesome and they're really almost like subtle mirror images of each other or kind of like fates intertwined very much like a Batman and Joker kind of vibe there. I'll explain more on just a little bit, but let's start with Charles Jacobs. What a fascinating and complex character, guys, and I just applaud King so much on what he did with this villain, and I even put villain in quotes because it's very, very subtle. And for those of us uh, regular King readers, you know that some of King villains can be just garbage from second one, and they are horrifying from second one, and they never let up, and they just cause destruction everywhere. But Charles Jacobs is not like that at all, and we meet him under a circumstance where we we really sympathize with him quite a bit um and so for me i i think i sympathize with him too much and that's how well written he is that's how complex he is so essentially charles jacobs is our bad guy but uh incorporating the tragedy that befell him and the grief metamorphosis he underwent and how tightly he clung to science and experimentation um with electricity to kind of cope um, he is someone who, although his victims are many, there are small areas in the mind of the reader where we really are sympathizing with him or trying to understand him or wanting to, in a way, cheer for him, which is so fascinating for me. So, as an example, in chapter 9, I think I think it's chapter 9, uh, Jamie and Charles have a pretty tense confrontation and this is after several decades have passed and Jamie realizes that although Jacob heals a lot of people through electricity, the healing is in conjunction with disastrous side effects that perhaps were way worse than the original illness. But Jacob argues the bigger numbers of those he has healed. Um, and so in the middle chapters, uh, before Jacobs becomes a full-time faith healer through electricity, he was a carnival act. And uh, there's a little bit of a connection to Joyland, which I will share in our last section, but I think it, you know, it took him a while to kind of get to that um, part, let me speak the King's English here. Um, but I think it took him a while of, of manifesting his ability to uh, to actually find his life's purpose, which might be for evil rather than good. Um, but I, and that's where we really sort of see that Dr. Frankenstein taking years and years and years to, um, to manifest. Um, but I love, love, love Charles Jacobs, guys. And I love how 
Jamie runs into him over a period of almost five decades, give or take, and we see the subtle descent of this man from just a law-abiding good man who is serving the Harlow, Maine community. He suffers tremendous life-altering loss and just decides to let go, very much like an unhinged dog off of a leash where he's not a violent dog, but he's definitely going to go his own way and he's never going to be on a leash again. And that's Charles Jacobs. He pursues the Carney circuit for a while, sort of testing the capabilities of lightning in an entertaining way. Then, over the years, he transitions to being a faith healer, in quotes, where he's using electricity to heal people, but heal is also in quotes as it's bringing a lot of darkness with it. Um, but his descent into um, madness and revenge is subtle, and that's what's so cool about him. He's a subtle villain, unlike the despicable Jim Rennie from Under the Dome, who I hate with the fire of a thousand suns, or most notably uh, Greg Stilson from The Dead Zone. I he was awful. Um, Reverend Jacobs is really likable for me, and I liked him for a very, very long time. Perhaps when I should have started to distrust him, I was still giving him chances and still giving him slack. And that's a good character in my opinion, someone who makes the reader a little bit torn and also heavily interested, and I just love what King did with Jacobs, and I'm super excited to see what Mike Flanagan does with Jacobs in terms of keeping that ambiguity, keeping him very likable and sympathetic while also making him slightly evil and sinister in his motivations or if Flanagan's gonna just go down the the despicable villain path and make him really monstrous after the death of his wife so I'm very curious how the those lines are going to be um tiptoed around concerning this character and also I can't wait to see who's gonna play him Secondly, um, Jamie Morton, my other star. So Jamie Morton is a Byronic hero, my friends, and what a pleasure that was to read in this story. Um, the more I think about the nature of Byronic hero, I think Charles Jacobs could also be one too, just a little bit um, on the anti-hero side. But to describe it quickly without going overly nerdy onto who Lord Byron was, um, a good example of a Byronic hero, at least the ones that they always used in school for us, is the character of Batman, um, specifically sort of Bruce Wayne slash Batman. But Batman, the actual persona of him, when he's not saving Gotham, is someone who is moody and brooding and deeply private, and all of those personality traits that make him mysterious and melancholy are tied to roots of a painful past or secret grief. And so for those of you DC fans out there like myself, Batman became Batman because young Bruce Wayne had his parents murdered right in front of him as a young child, and that trauma haunts his days forever um, because it was also the catalyst to creating who Batman is. So the grief transformed Bruce into Batman, but Batman, or the true heart of Bruce Wayne, in general, 
always wears that pain and he will never open up to people. He will never trust them. Um, and as an example, notice how Batman always disappears when he's talking to people. He's always the first one to fly away. He'll never allow that vulnerability to occur, never really show himself as wanting or needing another human. He's always the first one to dip out or he'll never reveal anything. And I can't help but get that vibe with the character of Jamie Morton. And for me, I think I'm at this point just shy of 30 Stephen King novels, so if not a little bit over. So pardon me if a character like Jamie Morton has been explored a little bit, but one thing that's kind of fresh to see um, in this story is a quintessential no guesswork by Ron Akiro. Um, so I know there may be more out there, but Jamie Morton is cut and dry, whereas I think other King characters may have missed the Byronism. Uh, I may have missed it in them when uh, I, I was reading them. So I hope to see more concrete examples of this, but another huge sort of telltale of a Byronic hero is how much of a bachelor Jamie is. Um, and that's, I think, also a unique thing in a King character. Uh, Jamie really chooses this lone wolf rocker lifestyle in college and maintains it the rest of his life, especially when he realizes he's able to make a living and survive and have fun. And um, he's a layered character. He's also a super layered character um, where I give him a ton of slack. For example, the heroin addiction of Jamie comes on pretty quickly in the story. It really hits the reader full on because um, we just see Jamie in college and then in like the next chapter, he's 36 and absolutely strung out and in really bad shape. And so I think just when the reader is about to judge Jamie for getting too sucked up in the band circuit, um, you realize it was from a motorcycle injury and a shattered hip and a poorly he healed leg egg and eventually the pain med scripts ran out and what many millions of people who faced opioid addiction from injury have faced is just to pursue heroin on the streets to find relief so Jamie after he's he's so cool for me because I think King just makes him so likable but he just pursues that lonely path. He never pursues marriage or family, nor does he express a desire to have it. And the one significant relationship in the story is with his first love, Astrid Soderberg, which I believe they're under 18 by the time it dissolves. But this is, you know, after that breakup, and it didn't even really seem like that bad of a breakup, just, you know, they kind of moved away from each other, but Astrid did sort of move on from him, and I think in the text it did say that Jamie assumed they would marry, so, um, but after that, he pursues rock and roll for the rest of his life, and as my theory that that's his chosen god, the one he exchanged his sorrow for, he never marries, he has children, and he doesn't pursue commitment with anyone in particular. And for me, I can't think of another character that's been as free um, in King's work in, in terms of being completely unattached. So if there are, please let me know. I would love to read about others who are really, really in this bachelor circle. But I think some of the other characters out there in King's world are usually plagued with either shine, like Danny Torrance, or in Johnny Smith's case, the telepathy and injury. And there are dozens of King characters who have to be 
alone due to their gifts or and abilities for one reason or another, but they crave love and family and usually reminisce about it or have a great desire to have it. But Jamie really shuns it and pursues the solo lifestyle. He never ruminates on it. And uh, I actually don't think Jamie even owns a house during the entire time of the novel. And we're with him until he's 60. So he's really like the most rambling and free character I've read from King in my journey thus far. And um, I, yeah, I, I think in all of my reading, I've always seen King characters wanting marriage, love, family, commitment, um, trying to get it, and not Jamie. So the Byronic hero is really alive and well with this one. And I'm also, my other hypothesis is perhaps the grief from losing his mother and sister, and perhaps Astrid um, provide that... <sighs> that wounded foundation um, where he was just so split by their loss that he's just decided to not be attached ever again to a woman like that um, and just pursue that sort of tumbleweed life and find joy through guitar and people making music but what's great about Jamie he's extremely likable he's very honorable he's interesting and as a female I'm so curious as to why he's so non-committal as uh, the Byronic hero is supposed to do that actually it's a natural it's very natural to be attracted to the Byronic hero so why no commitment Jamie Morton I I really uh, would like to know more about that but the two these two characters Charles Jacobs and Jamie Morton are so connected and I think uh, Charles is definitely sort of a foil for Jamie in a lot of ways but the two of them are amazing together and I really feel their destinies are linked and they need each other in small ways um, and throughout the novel Jamie refers to Charles as his fifth business which I really really like. So I do have a few honorable mention characters. Um, so Astrid Soderberg, we do meet her in the novel as Jamie's first sort of crush and then eventual uh, high school romance and they lose their virginity together on top of Sky Top. It's really romantic. And um, Astrid is someone who, who I think breaks Jamie's heart, but it's in such a subtle way that the reader doesn't get a good notion of just how broken up Jamie was about it, or if he was, or... But we also see Astrid in the last half of the novel. So it was kind of really cool to see her make an appearance as one of the most significant females in uh, Jamie's life aside from his mother and sister Claire. Um, but I really enjoy her character in terms of the directions she went. We don't hear much about her, but she is this incredibly sheltered, naive girl who blossoms in the rock and roll scene with Jamie and I can't help but think of that Rod Stewart song um, Young Turks and the chorus is young hearts be free tonight time is on your side like I just that is Jamie and Astrid they're just these wild kids who are 
like making out all the time and smoking cigarettes at least Astrid did she smoked I don't know if Jamie did and getting high and all over town and they're so in love and they're so obsessed with each other and um, I think it's a very significant part of Jamie's life and the fact that we see her again and we see Astrid in a much more vulnerable state at the end of the novel so I really enjoy the character of Astrid she makes me very curious as to maybe she was the 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 straw that broke the camel's back in terms of Jamie never really wanting to commit or marry after Astrid so not sure about that and then Hugh Yates is also a great one he's another honorable mention he is the manager and owner of Wolfjaw Records who Charles Jacobs heals in the early 80s um, because Hugh was going deaf and Hugh is this kind of wise old sage he's also like an old rocker and he connects with Jamie in a lot of ways and they're the ones that sort of explore uh, Charles Jacobs in his latter faith healing days and there's a lot of strong connections there but I like Hugh as that kind of older presence that's that gave Jamie a second chance and he's uh, has a lot of money and a lot of influence but he's very humble and it it definitely doesn't end well for Hugh but I I enjoyed his presence and his time with Jamie on the page so those four um, but the two especially like this novel is the Jamie and Charles show um, and this is why guys I feel it's so important to please get a copy of if it bleeds and read mr. Harrigan's phone because not only um, do we have similar font and uh, I know that that's weird not necessarily font but the layout of the story of revival matches mr. Harrigan's phone identically so not that that is a huge indication of connection but takes place in the same town and I just can't help but draw parallels from Jamie Morton and Charles Jacobs to the subtle bond between Mr. Harrigan and Craig in the story of Mr. Harrigan's phone. I really feel that it's like an echo of this story. Mr. Harrigan's phone is an echo of revival. So if you did enjoy revival guys, definitely read Mr. Harrigan's phone, which is the first story in If It Bleeds. And let me know, am I crazy? Am I, is, have I uh, had a little too much lightning in this novel? Cause I am, I, I think, I think it's connected. I really do. So let me know what you guys think. I would love to hear your thoughts, but that's about all that I have for our character section. So let's go in to our last examination of revival. We're going to look at what's working well, and we're going to talk about the ending. So spoilers ahead if you haven't read it. I'm going to go pretty deep. I'm going to talk about all the things. So turn back now if you wish. Um, but if not, uh, let's head into the rain together. Step right up everyone for our last section of the novel revival coverage where we're going to look at what's working well and we'll talk about the ending and my final thoughts on this stellar underrated novel. So I have three little areas for my favorite um, 
topics of what's working well. So the first one is the passing of time slash coming of age. So I think that that is the real strength of this novel. I think that there is a lot of heart there, but the fact that we have such a large passing of time, I think is always helpful in a King novel to feeling that connection and that power to the characters. Um, so we meet precious little Jamie at six years old and then we meet him again as a teenager uh, when he's just discovering life and rock music and all of these sort of coming age of age moments when he gets his first car and his first sexual experience and so there's a lot of um, a sort of mutual human milestones that are represented through the character of Jamie. And then we get him at 36 when he's really in the throngs of desperation. And then we hang out a lot with him in his 50s um, when he's just uh, with white hair and an apartment and trying to find meaning and purpose and, and, uh, and aging and still trying to connect with with rock music as an aging male and then at 61 when the novel ends so um, we also see Charles Jacobs go from a young minister with a family and uh, just a, a sweet man with a ton of promise and we see the gnarled old man at the very end of this book who's been racked by several strokes and obsession and loneliness potentially and revenge and so the passing of time I think is working really well we have 14 chapters they're all incredibly rich of course everything goes down in chapter 13 which I'll talk more about in just a second but the passing of time guys is so well done here and I think that the more we have that the more time uh, we have it um, in the novel it just sort of hits a little harder for me that's my sort of personal hypothesis I think that's why many people enjoy it so much is we see the losers club as young adolescents and then we see them in their early 40s almost and so there is something about time and growing older the wisdom the experiences the changed perspective all of it is essential to the human experience so I love it. Um, my second topic of what I feel is working well, oh, well, the horror of death, guys. So death in this novel, um, my friends, is not pretty. Wow. Um, gosh, almost every single death we have is very violent, very visceral, very, very graphic. And it's uh, really sort of a character in itself when it comes. Um, it destroys the lives of people. And I, I do like that in this novel, uh, King is really making the reader come face to face with the ugliness and the terror of what death can do. I was incredibly shocked when I was reading about the death of Patsy and Maury, Charles Jacobs's wife and son. It's rough, guys, and so I'm really wondering how how much they're gonna 
how dark they're gonna go in the movie because it's 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 like old-school horror um, in terms of the description but it's also so like it's terrifying you want to run from it and we see that with several deaths in this novel and I do think it's working well though because it's really solidifying how deep the pain goes um, and that grief metamorphosis I mentioned earlier in terms of you know what does the human soul do when the person they loved did not want to die and died in a horribly painful terrifying way what do we do with that like what it sucks and it's so hard and um king really makes the reader stay in that hard place with these characters and that's why it's really difficult to judge them especially charles jacobs i had uh, even when i should have been judging him i i was sympathizing probably way longer than i should have because the horror of death is really strong in this book so horror fans i think will enjoy those elements of the creepiness but i just couldn't help but notice the pattern of every time we do see death it is a very sinister very unwelcome you know most most people um other than one or two people that may have gone peacefully from disease uh others who suffer who are murdered or taken out early it's it's creepy and it's sad and so i feel that that is another strength to this novel in making the whole notion of faith um and as what uh, king said in that interview with matt lauer those with faith have further to fall and it's true it's true because i think that's that's the big painful question is when you are a believer and you trust God to protect your loved ones, to keep you safe, especially if you're in service of him, especially if you are in ministry. And then disaster strikes like that, um, and you you can't help but feel, not only did you not protect me, you didn't save them, you didn't heal me, like, the depths of the fall are so much further because the belief, once the floor of that gets pulled out from under you, it's a free fall for sure. And then my last thing is I just love the structure of this. Long, meaty chapters, really nice little foreshadowing that we all love from King that just keeps us turning the pages. Good time jumps as well, and that's a tie-in with the coming of age. I felt that was done really well. Um, slightly shocking though, I feel at the end of chapter three, Jamie's nine years old, and then in the next one, we have a little bit, I think, maybe it's chapter four is we've got high school, college age Jamie, and then he's 36. So uh, it works though. It works really, really well. So um, those are my three favorites. And then now we got to talk about the ending, guys. This is the, the time where we're going to devote to dissecting the ending. So one more warning. Uh, we're going to, we're going to, get it all out on the table. So if you don't want to hear that, uh, save it until you're all finished. Okay, guys. So the ending, the whole reason why we're talking about it is I feel it's the reason why this book isn't praised as much as it should be because it is polarizing. So 
what I have in chapter 13, we do see King do a major, major, in all caps, nod to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I mentioned in my If It Bleeds coverage is one of the most masterful, incredible novels of all time. Definitely one of the best gothic novels out there. And if you haven't read it, please do so once in your life because not only is it the first horror fiction novel, it is the first science fiction novel. So, um, it's it's one big homage to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein the entire chapter 13 we have a full-on recreation of bringing life to a dead corpse so King even names the victim Mary Fay in homage but oh my gosh guys this scene is theatrical it is a super big one I mean it is absolutely dramatic and climactic we're back at Skytop, which in the novel is a huge hotbed activity for change and literal lightning. So we're in Skytop, we're in a small little cottage, it is a stormy day, we are surrounded by lightning and thunder and the uh, and rain and uh, this little cottage is being pelted and we have a very old and withered and on death's door Mr. Jacobs claiming that this is the most significant moment of his life's work and King puts all the people in a small little cabin with lightning cracking all around them and a woman named Mary Fay who's been dead for 15 minutes or more is going to be revived through the awesome power of lightning and electricity via uh, Charles Jacobs's it looks like a little halo in my understanding of the text uh, like a metal halo that he's gonna put around her head and she's going to tell Jacobs what is on the other side of life what is death what is it what does it look like who is there oh god okay <laughs> I'm like gasping guys because what is delivered, my friends, is creepy AF, as the kids say. Um, this is when King revs up the horror, guys. Um, so we know as if you're a regular King reader, King has mentioned uh, when he discusses various novels how he is someone who discovers a novel in its writing, and I really see that here because I think King decided to run with the horror ending and when I think that he was like, all right, I'm going to make it scary. And he just runs with it. Um, and we'll talk about why that may or may not have been the best choice. But when Mary does rise from the land of the dead, it's uh, really creepy. Uh, there are some classic King creepouts in there. I won't spoil them for you. But basically... Um, she reveals what's on the other side. And again, last warning guys, spoiler, 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 if you don't want this revealed, pause now. Okay. She reveals what's on the other side, and we've had subtle hints before the big reveal from Mary, subtle little clues thus far, but she solidifies them, and my friends, it's bad. It's very dark and very sad, and basically humans are walking in long lines. Um, they're naked, and we are being lorded over by giant ant beasts. You heard that right? Ant is in a little ant in the ant hill. They are enormous and they're lording over us and should a human get out of line they bite us and devour us but we don't die because we're already dead. And if you are a fan of art um, or you know 
doomsday eschatology kind of topics. Think of Dante's Inferno or the painter Bosch, those nightmare, <laughs> those absolute nightmare descriptions where the human soul is enslaved in terror and darkness with Beastmasters. And it looks like we are all headed toward what Mary says is mother. Mother is queen ant or perhaps an unknown entity of that's a supernatural being, but it seems like it's a negative connotation. It is not benevolent. It is not loving or kind. It is a terrifying thing of which we head to mother. I can't be sure. So it gets worse because Mary is revealing this through death. Um, her body is sort of spasming and fluctuating. And then uh, um, <laughs> a giant ant slash insect leg shoots out of Mary's mouth and attached to the leg are faces of the dead and specifically Jacob's deceased wife and son's faces. And this is a little strangely described for me in the text because I'd, I'm a little puzzled to envision, I don't know if it's like thousands of faces on the ant leg and whether they're like hundreds of dewdrops and it's just like a face that's copied all over the leg or if it's just a giant face attached to the leg. I'm not really sure the description at that point. It's just a terrifying scene and it's pure chaos. Um, but the novel ends in terror, guys. There's no closure. There's actually none at all. And um, we have a little bit of a breather chapter uh, in chapter 14 where Jamie's talking with a therapist he's revealing all this stuff his therapist does not believe him and the last sort of lines in the book is that he's confident he'll hang on to life for a few more years but when he dies he will quote go to mother aka a hell of enslaved human souls ant creatures and darkness it's very grim it's very sad and it definitely casts a pall when you turn the page so I do feel, uh, so before I talk about why, about like maybe what's falling flat in the ending, two things are present here. One thing is not present that maybe should be, and then, uh, so let me talk about my two things. So the two things that are not present, the first one is love, right? So this is an absolute rough ending, guys, because... Um, there's a lot of love in this book. There really is, especially between the bonds of family. And um, there's no love in the death climax, and that's a huge departure from the book. And um, yeah, I think that love is the center of all things. I mean, I don't mean to sound super hippy-dippy, but there's a, there's a lot of love at the end of life. And uh, I think that King really eschews that, or eschews um, that for the terror ending. Um, but the other thing that's present, and I think we have another under the dome moment, is we have too much description. Um, much like under the dome where people really did not like that ending is because we have description of extraterrestrials. They are said to be these leather-faced, baggy, leather-headed creatures. It was too much, and I think people were like, what the hell? And uh, instantly uninterested because 
we we are slaves to our imagination and to our tactile world and so when you give us words like leather-headed, it's strange, and I think it pulls us out of the mystery. And in this situation, I really think that a more mysterious, subtle hand would have worked better. Um, for example, I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite scary movies of all time, which is 1982's Poltergeist. And, um, one, I forget her name in the movie, but Zelda Rubinstein, who's this awesome uh, actress, she's trying to explain to the family that Carol Ann is in danger, but what she says is that a beast is keeping her very close, but to Carol Ann, he appears to her as just another child. So we never see a creature. I mean, later on we see creatures, but we don't really, it's not defined. So our imaginations are just going wild because we're like, oh my god, a beast, like what does this look like? And what, and so we are left to our own imaginations and that's where real terror is, I think, at least for me, the terror of the unknown, we want to know. So king brings in ants like ant monsters you know and so it's like that's weird so i can't help but think of like um the really old school like one million years bc movement or movie where it's just you know a giant clay scorpion uh attacking people i i don't know it's um i feel there was a bit too much of a heavy hand with this ending and I feel there should have been more of a subtle hand in keeping it mysterious. It's okay if King wanted a dark ending, for sure that's fine, I think we can all be on board with that, but give us more mystery. Um, I think the ant creatures killed it for me a little bit where I was... Um, I mean, if I saw, if, if he wrote about like a tentacle-like entity coming out of Mary's mouth, that would be really scary. But the fact that I was thinking of an ant and a giant ant beast and um, it just, it's hard. It's hard and I feel it's such a drastic roller coaster drop off from the meditation of grief and loss that this novel brings throughout and then we have ant beasts and there's no hope and we are all enslaved by monsters and it's going to be a hell-like existence where there's no love or light or reunion with our loved ones. It sucks guys, you know, it's very dark and but I feel it's the fact that like we have physical description of monsters and that one is hard to reconcile. You can't go back um, once we know that ant beasts are involved and monsters, much like the leather-headed aliens. Yes, we, oh, it's, it's kind of like, I wish you wouldn't have told me what they look like because my own imagination made it so much worse. So I think I wish that King would have taken his foot off the gas a little bit and made more mystery. There are a few lines of mystery that I really enjoyed. For example, he talks about an ivy-colored, uh, ivy-covered door, excuse me, an ivy-covered door and the ivy is dead and what's behind it. There's also the symbol of ants, several times in the novel. Um, ants appearing in Nightmares of Jamie, um, ants appearing in the hallucinations of Hugh Yates um, when he's kind of having a prismatic fit, which is one of the side effects from being healed by Jacobs. So 
I just wish that maybe the ants, uh, I don't know, like as a symbol in the nightmares it could have been cool, but at the end King just says, ant monsters are going to rule over us all in the afterlife. And it's like, oh. Um, so for me, I believe that is one of the reasons why when readers get to the very end, we're kind of like, the hell? Um, and uh, the journey is kind of tainted a little bit. Um, but this is one of those, much like I talked about in my coverage of Under the Dome, I, I would really funnel this into King just trying to do a version of Frankenstein. I think that this was King, he got caught up in the inertia of, of really trying to give a modern day Frankenstein and attaching it to this tale. So that is what I'm associating it with. So I'm trying, what I'm recommending readers do is when you get to chapter 13, definitely sort of put a box around it in your mind and just tell yourself this is a Frankenstein recreation. This is a Frankenstein moment and I think he went a little too far with it. Um, but I'm just, I'm honoring that it is a Frankenstein adaptation and recreation. I think it's done well. It's creepy as hell. And I like that he honors Mary Shelley and the novel in this way. But I, I do, I do wish that there would have been more mystery. It's okay that it's a dark ending. I just think that the, the moment he brought in creatures and monsters, I, I feel that the narrative we needed to see more of those, or basically we needed to know about them way earlier in the text. So, just something. Those are my thoughts on that. Um, so. I, I so love this book, guys, and here's, um, I'm going to segue into, before we take off, I did want to read one more short little piece from the novel because there are so many connections to Joyland in here that I didn't realize until this second read. And uh, with this second read, I actually believe that Revival could very well be a Joyland companion piece. I think you could definitely read it before or after, but I feel the novel itself was written after Joyland. But this is on page 167, guys, and I want to leave us with a positive note before we say goodbye to Revival. Um, but this is on page 167. He grinned his boyish grin, the one he'd worn when he was leading the games in the parsonage basement. When I invented the portrait camera, which is actually a combined generator and projector as I'm sure you know, I did attempt to do both men and women. This was at a little seaside amusement park in North Carolina called Joyland. Out of business now, but it was a lovely place, Jamie. I enjoyed it greatly. During my time on the Midway, which was called Joyland Avenue, there was a rogues gallery next to Mysterio's Mirror Mansion. It featured life-size cardboard figures with cutouts where faces belonged. There was a pirate, a gangster with an automatic, a tough Jane with a Tommy gun, the Joker and Catwoman from the Batman comics. People would put their faces in and the park's traveling photographers, Hollywood girls they were called, would snap their pictures. 
So um, if you guys haven't heard my episode on Joyland, uh, you'll see why I'm such a Joyland fangirl, but I love it so much and I love that there's connections to Joyland in here and it works. There's a lot of Carney speak. So I think if you read Joyland, you'll pick up a lot of the Carney speak and it echoes over here in Revival. And then it also echoes in Dr. Sleep, which I do feel I'm going to cover here this year um, because the director's cut of the film is so good and Mike Flanagan is a shining star and we are all in love with him. But um, please read Joyland, guys, and then read Revival right after and uh, let me see what you think. Um, I think that these guys are brother novels for me. I think they're a little bit like twin flames a little bit um, in terms of their connection to one another, but also I feel Revival is, is more of a frightening look at... Um, it's the kind of vibe that Joyland carried most definitely. But that is going to round out the coverage for Revival. I could go for hours and hours, but we will most definitely be speaking more about it in the future as Mike Flanagan is a hero in our hearts and he's going to bring it to the silver screen, of which I am so thrilled. My heart is bursting because I love this novel. It is in my top five right alongside with Joyland. And now that I realize how connected they are, it just all seems so perfect. So I think the storm has passed, my friends. Thank you for weathering it with me and uh, staying in the rain as we dissect this very cool, very strange book with an ending that please don't let it taint your journey. Put it in a box, call it a Frankenstein recreation, and appreciate the beautiful writing and storytelling and time with these very rich characters. Very well-written, complex characters. So I appreciate you all so much much for hanging out with me. Please reach out to the show on all social media outlets. If you would be so kind, if you are a regular listener and haven't done so already, head over to Apple Podcasts and just click the five stars so we can reach more readers. And coming up, I have some surprises up my sleeve that will be hopefully dropping next week. Just a couple uh, new episodes that um, I wasn't planning on doing these titles, but uh, the spirit moved me and uh, I'm excited to share them with you. So I so appreciate a word crash there, like a little train crash. I so appreciate you all so much for hanging out with me. I know these are long-winded episodes, but I hope you find a little bit of entertainment. I love to hear your thoughts. Please reach out to me at underratedsk at gmail or any social media outlet. We are found on all of them. Stay safe. Take care. Enjoy where whatever summer you're in, unless you're my Aussie guys, and uh, t stay warm. And somebody, please order a, a, a skinny, strong, flat white for me. And I would love you forever. Please take care, and I'll see you on our next episode. <laughs>